Our reading for today comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 24. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord in righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Salah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Salah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome, everyone. This is now the third in a series of sermons uh, that I'm preaching through on the topic of worship. In the first sermon, I mentioned that one of the dictionaries define worship along three aspects, which actually align quite nicely with what the Bible has to say about worship. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the three primary definitions for worship are as follows. One, worship is reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power, also an act of expressing such reverence. I told you um, that the primary word for worship in both the Old Testament and the New Testament means to bow or to kneel. Um, perhaps some of you, uh, like my wife, grew up in churches or in homes where you had worship or family worship, where you actually had to sit in a kneeling position as a sign of your reverence uh, as you did worship. Of course, we don't do this uh, very much anymore, but acts of reverence necessarily involve the body. You know, and that's why I'm so glad to see uh, so many of our uh, children and adults, too, uh, standing up and dancing before the Lord uh, as we worship. The body, the, the physical part of our worship um, is an important part of worship. And so this act of bowing or uh, kneeling is a way that we express our submission to one who is greater than us. And as we submit our bodies, then our spirits also uh, follow in submission. Secondly, worship is a form of religious practice with its creed and ritual. This is the liturgical aspect of worship and what we usually talk about when we say worship. This is what we do when we gather together on Sunday morning, like today. Now, I'm going to talk about this starting next week and for the rest of the summer, so we'll skip this for today. And the third definition is that worship is extravagant respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem, such as the worship of the dollar. This speaks to one's attitudes or the disposition of the heart. In fact, it is an orientation of life devoted to something, and this is the aspect of worship 
I'd like for us to focus on this morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you again for your word. And now as we worship, help us to offer up to you a worship that is pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 24 is considered by many scholars as a processional or an entry uh, liturgy that celebrates God's entrance into Zion. Some have suggested that the psalm was created and used or it commemorated the time when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to the Israelites from the Philistines and brought into this temporary sanctuary that King David had built in 2 Samuel 6 and where King David famously or infamously danced in his underwear in celebration. The psalm opens with this powerful, all-encompassing profession of faith. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The whole world belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. The God who is worshipped is the creator, the sustainer, and the ruler of all that is. The psalm and our worship begin with this recognition, this affirmation of who God is, how great God is. It tells us this is the God that we are worshiping, and this God is worthy of worship. The psalm then concludes with a reaffirmation of God's greatness, and in what looks like a responsive reading says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It goes on to tell us about this God who is worshipped is the Lord. He is the King of glory. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord. From the beginning to the end, the psalm and our worship is all about God. So if we believe, if we know that God is indeed awesome and worthy of praise, what does that mean for those who would worship him? And that is the question that is asked in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord and the holy place symbolize where God dwells. It's where the temple is located in Mount Zion in Jerusalem and where people went to worship. God is holy and therefore God's place is holy. Who can enter into such holy presence? And the answer is given to us in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands, of course, has taken on a far greater significance in recent months. We're told to constantly wash our hands, and to keep them clean. But this is not, of course, about hygiene, nor is it even about ritual cleansing before coming into worship. It's more like the idiom that we have about not having blood on your hands. It's about living righteously. It's about loving your neighbors. So in that way, perhaps, the washing of our hands can fit into this. Of course, washing hands is a way to protect yourself, but it's also a way of loving our neighbors. 
With clean hands, you are protecting your neighbors, friends, and family from the possibility of you inadvertently passing on the virus. So clean hands points to our visible loving behavior toward others. And so people often read a pure heart to mean only the unseen inner disposition in contrast to these outward actions and appearances. For example, when God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king to replace King Saul, Samuel sees the first son of Jesse, a tall, good-looking guy, and he thinks this must be the next king of Israel because he looks like a king. And God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, looks on the inside. Furthermore, because of our Western mindset, we think of the heart primarily as the seat of emotions, and we tend to separate it from other aspects of our being, like the intellect or the will. So when we hear something like the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When we hear that, many people misunderstand the heart, soul, and might as if we're talking about three different parts of our being and that we are to love God with each separate part. Perhaps to love God with our heart means to love with our emotions. To love God with our soul means perhaps something like to love God with our spirits and to love God with all of our might is to love God with all of our uh, strength or our bodies. Uh, I can remember when I was a youth pastor, I would sometimes use this verse to tell the kids that they had to worship God with all their might, that is with all their bodies. And so I would tell them, you got to stand up, you got to clap, you got to shout because that you got to give God all your worship and the Bible says you have to worship God with all your might. Now, I think that is right in the sense that we ought to worship God with all that we have, but that is not what might means in this passage. That is not the meaning of the word might, nor is that what it means to love God with all of our hearts. The heart in the Hebrew way of thinking is far more inclusive than the way we think about it in terms of emotions. It includes the mind, thinking, the will, decision-making, and so on. I think this is why when Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, they had a tough time translating that uh, into Greek. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, Jesus says, the most important thing is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's quoting now from Deuteronomy 6. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Heart, soul, and might, three words in the Hebrew in Deuteronomy 6, but heart, soul, mind, and strength, four words in the New Testament. Jesus seems to be using a combination of words, the words heart and mind, to cover the one word heart in Deuteronomy. As this next diagram shows, heart is not one part of you that can be separated from the rest of you as is shown on the left. You are not made up of four separate parts. Rather, as the diagram on the right indicates, heart is the center of your being from which the rest 
of the love of your God emanates. To have a pure heart is not just feeling something toward God that is separate from the rest of your being and the rest of your life. It involves emotions, certainly, but it also includes right thinking, right attitudes. It's all that motivates your love of God with your whole being, your whole life, including all that you possess. This is what it is to love God with your heart, with your soul, and with your might. So the combination of clean hands and a pure heart points to this integration and the unity required of our outward behaviors and our inner motivations. It's not just having some sort of an internal and personal devotional life that is divorced from the realities of our everyday living. It speaks to all of life. As Pastor Samuel pointed out last Sunday, all of life is worship. And those who carry this new badge of faith to those who are one in the spirit, there is a new way of living characterized by the love of our neighbors and the humility to self-critique and self-correct. People somehow think that they can be pious and worship God with prayers and praise on Sunday with a pure heart, and yet they'll go and cheat at school on Monday. They'll steal at work on Tuesday, and they'll lie at home on Wednesday. That's just not possible. God is one, and he calls us also to a oneness in thought and action, clean hands and a pure heart. The reason for this is made clear in the next phrase. The one who has clean hands, clean hands and a pure heart is the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The translation here obscures it, but this actually repeats one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Exodus 27 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As you can see here in the, in the red and the green, those are the same words that appear in Psalm 24. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to what is false, because God will not hold him guiltless who lifts up the name of God to what is false. In other words, those who have clean hands and a pure heart are those who come to worship this one and only God. And those who worship this God must live in such a way that aligns with this God's character. These are the worshipers that God seeks, and such worshipers will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. This means for us, that while everyone might be invited to worship, not every form of worship that is offered is acceptable to God. This will sound exclusive and perhaps even offensive to modern notions of tolerance, of inclusivity, and personal comfort. But when it comes to worship, God seeks a particular kind of worshiper. We live in a culture that basically says, come as you are. Don't judge. Love is all that matters. It doesn't matter what you believe or what you're doing or what you think. God loves you no matter what. In one sense, this, of course, is true. 
God welcomes all who seek him. Ele- uh, Hebrews 11.6 does say that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. But the rest of that verse makes it clear that it requires faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God seeks a particular kind of worshiper, those who come with clean hands and a pure heart. So much of the American movement in worship has been toward making the worship of God more acceptable to people. The questions that are usually asked are, what do people like? What kind of music, what kind of messages will will interest people? And how can we make worship that is more appealing to them? This is completely backwards. Worship requires submission to God in faith to seek what God wants and demands of us a way of living, of being, of clean hands and a pure heart. This is why there is so much emphasis on ritual cleaning in the Torah. It's to remind the congregation about the holiness of God, who this God is that we are serving, and that we dare not come to worship with a flippancy and casualness that we bring to the other activities of our lives. You cannot show up to worship as if you're showing up to a little league baseball game, as if it's something to watch and to do other things when your child is not up to bat. You cannot come to worship in such a cavalier attitude, in your pajamas, or having just rolled out of bed with a cup of coffee in your hand. Worship requires of us a submission to God, as exemplified in kneeling, and a submission to God's way of being, as exemplified by this combination of clean hands and a pure heart. It requires of us not only a seriousness and attitude, but the constant ordering and reordering of our entire lives in accordance with God's commandments to love God and to love our neighbors. It may be that this is what Jesus was thinking about, this combination of clean hands and a pure heart, when he said in Matthew 5 about those who are going to worship, if you are offering your gift at the altar, And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then, and then come and offer your gift. How many of us take our worship this seriously and holistically? How many of you have ever remembered that a family member has something against you And on your way to church, you turned around and went home to resolve it. If we're all being honest right now, we would all probably need to do that and leave worship. I confess that I have failed in this regard on multiple multiple occasions, and perhaps you can relate to this as well. I can remember a number of times where I would have a pretty bad argument with my wife or get very angry with my kids on Sunday morning. 
And I feel like such a hypocrite preaching that day about loving your neighbors or forgiving one another when I know that I had not. It's not that the message I preached was wrong. It's that I wasn't living it. I was wrong. I was too insecure when I was a younger preacher, but I've wondered since if I should have said at least on one occasion, hey guys, I can't preach this morning. I had a fight with my wife this morning and I need to go home and resolve it. And then maybe if you stick around for a few hours, I'll come back and then I'll give my message. That would have been a more honest and acceptable worship to God. I suppose most of us think that there are too many unresolved arguments in our lives and that we can resolve them later. And so we come to worship anyway with hardened hearts. But such worship, Jesus says, is not acceptable. Just because you show up to worship doesn't mean that God accepts your worship. Remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4? It's the first example we have of worship. The brothers each offered up worship, a sacrifice to God. Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. What was the difference in their offerings? It wasn't because God liked meat better than rice. It's not stated explicitly, but we are told that Abel brought the firstborn and their fat portion, suggesting that he brought the best of what he had. But of Cain's offering, we are only told that he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. There is a word like firstborn, first fruits, that is the grain equivalent, and had Cain chosen to bring that, perhaps that would have been acceptable. That would have been an indicator of where his heart lay, but no such description appears. We also get a clue in the way that the sentence is structured. Cain's actions are described very simply. He brought some offering. But one translator suggests translating it this way. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And oh, and Abel brought, indeed he brought from the firstborn of his flock and from their fatty portions. It emphasizes that his actions were more important. Hebrews 11.4 even says in thinking about this, that it was by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him, by accepting his gifts. God's acceptance of Abel's worship is because God considered Abel to be righteous. The problem was not what was offered, not the form of worship that was offered. The problem was the man. It seems to be that Cain thought to appease God with an offering without submitting his life to God, without recognizing who this God is to whom he was making an offering while Abel knew God and came by faith and therefore made an offering worthy of this God that he worshiped. His offering indicates that he knew the worthiness of this God. And it's this faith 
this knowing of God that leads to right worship. It's about knowing God. When we know God, we can offer to God an offering and a worship that is worthy of this God. Jim Wilder, in a recent book titled Renovated, says that the Bible teaches and that recent brain studies confirm that human transformation happens not through the picking out of various sins and repenting of them and thinking just more about God, but genuine transformation happens through our attachment to God and to others. To put more simply, we are transformed more by whom we love rather than by what we believe. This is why the psalm and our worship must begin with an affirmation of who God is. That's why we begin with praise and prayer. We acknowledge who this God is that we worship. And that's why we end with a double benediction. It's so that the last words ringing in your ears as we end our time together will be of the God, this great God, who loves you and who wants to bless you. Worship is about knowing God and loving God. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Think about that for a moment. Those who are pure of heart will see God. That is a revolutionary statement that Jesus made. We know that people cannot see God. Seeing God's face is prohibited. Even Moses, someone who was so close to God, was not permitted to see God's face, but only God's back. But Jesus says, those who are pure in heart shall see God. And the psalmist says, such is a generation that seeks the face of God. This is what we're doing in worship. We are seeking the face of God. Let me close with this. I want to be clear that bringing a seriousness to worship does not mean that worship is somehow to be a time of fear and of joylessness. The majesty of God, the king of glory, is not someone to be frightened of, but on the contrary, it's the one to whom we want to respond with appropriate awe. Now, depending on the church that some of you may have grown up in, you may have some vestiges of this fear of God. I remember um, for a time I was at a church where, you know, this was just the constant theme to fear God, that we ought to be afraid, that we ought to be afraid to sin because God would punish us and so on. And perhaps you grew up where God was described as a vengeful God, one ready to punish sin, or if you skip worship or do it badly, will throw you into hell. You may have been told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that you need to fear God, that is to be scared of God if you are going to be a Christian. I want to tell you that, that that's not right at all. That is not the sense of what it means to fear God. Fear, of course, can mean that. It can mean dread or terror when facing some unknown danger, like uh, 
wild animals or your enemies or even death. But the word that gets translated as fear is also a word that means to express reverence and worship. It is a trusting awe towards someone who is greater and someone who can help you. For example, Psalm 22, you who fear the Lord, praise him, right? If you fear the Lord, that is, if you revere the Lord, you praise him. You do not cower in abject fear. If this meant that you are to be terrified of God, you wouldn't praise him. You would be hiding. But those who worship the Lord, those who revere the Lord, who are in awe of him, praise him. Psalm 31, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Not only is God's goodness abundant, but this tells us that God is working for those who take refuge in him. God is not working to destroy you. God is working to help those who take refuge in him. Psalm 33, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Those who fear him, those who revere him, also hope in him, that he may deliver their soul, that is, deliver their life from death and keep them alive in famine. God is watching those who revere him, not to punish them, but to rescue and deliver them. Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Again, it's all about deliverance. It's all about rescue. Those who revere him and trust in his power. There are many other passages that make similar um, points. I hope these passages make clear that the fear of God, the worship of God is reverence toward the one who is powerful and loves us and works to deliver us. God is not to be trifled with, but God is the one who is to be worshiped and is worthy of worship because God is one who delivers us, the one who is looking out for us, not one who is trying to ruin us. This is not a God to run away from, nor a God to hide away from in fear. This is a God that you want to draw near to. Do you see how good this God is? Don't you want to know this God and to worship this God? to love this God and to come before this God with clean hands and a pure heart. This may get a little bit chaotic, but I'd like for all of you now to unmute yourselves and join me in a responsive reading. So I'm gonna read the, the regular text, the first line, and I would like you all to respond in the bold text in response. All right? They lifted up all ancient doors, and the king of glory come in. Who is this king of glory? Lift up your, lift up your Who is this King of Glory? Who 
right. That wasn't great, but <laughs> and us acknowledging who this King of Glory is. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the King of Glory. And we worship you because you have power to rescue us. You've taken away our sins, our shame, and you have brought us into your kingdom of light. Help us to seek your face, to know you, to worship you with clean hands and a pure heart, with our whole being. And in that knowing, in that loving relationship, would you transform us into the image of your son and our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you because we know that we cannot make ourselves clean. We cannot purify our own hearts, but that you have made it possible for us through our Lord Jesus. And it is in his name we pray together the prayer he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, we'll have our time.